Hi, thank you for being here. How's your energy now? A little digesting, a little energy centered in the stomach? A little, yeah, I see a nodding. Okay, everybody get up, please. Let's do, let's exercise our voice a little bit, all right? So excuse me for this. A demonstration. We need to use our voices, and the voice in this workshop is a broad concept. It's the notion of tone, and it's also using our instrument. So we want to loosen up our instrument. Okay, so we're going to do a little shaking, a little jaw moving, a little yawning. Okay, now, make sure you have a little bit of room around you. Okay, this is what I want. Okay. Here we go. What you're going to do, if I don't fall off this chair, okay, is you're going to be shaking and roaring. You're going to stick your tongue out as far as possible, shake your booty, and roar. One, two, three. One, two, three. Somebody else count it down. participatory workshop. Yes. Okay. So, in line, oh wait, we have a newcomer who needs to uh, loosen up her voice. Yeah. I mean, we, we got to get in the same vocal range here, right? Okay. Would somebody, Marianne, would you demonstrate, please? Yes. Put your... <laughs> okay, and now, and now it's your turn, please. <laughs> Close enough. Okay. This is not a workshop where you wait till the end to ask, to say, to speak, to participate. It's about the voice. Use them, okay? If there's certain things you want to hear, I have an arsenal up here that I have, get very klutzy cueing. There's downtime, okay? Uh, if you've got pieces you want to play and talk about, that's fine too. We can just move around. But first, perhaps we should define voice. Oh, God. Microphone is albatross. Voice, right? Pretty simple. We're using English. Uh, now, this lovely simple word is kind of cool. Kind of cool. Where vo is the ice. What we're doing is heating things up and cooling things down depending on the tone we use and the way we use. Okay, now remember this workshop though it's called voice is not about where do we put our plosives and our fricatives so much as where do we put our soul in the piece? How do we know what's the right voice for the piece? What determines that? So we're gonna kind of bridge these different things. Now, what I really like about this word in English is if we take out the O. Vice. Now, of course, it could be a vice grip it stops our glottis. 
or it can be our vice. There are people we've all heard on the air who are in love with their voices. It is their vice. Okay. Now, because I wasn't really sure about much of anything, actually, which is why I'm still in this business, I went to the dictionary, right? We all do reference work, we do searches, we do research. So let me establish, please, according to Anonymous Dictionary A, what is the voice? The sound produced in a person's larynx and uttered through the mouth as speech or song. Meg raised her voice, a worried tone of voice. Other definition, an agency by which a particular point of view is expressed or represented, and that is key to what we do. Very key. And then in music, it says here, the range of pitch or type of tone with which a person sings, a vocal part in a composition, and here's the part I really liked, give voice to allow a particular emotion, opinion, or point of view to be expressed. Well, that's a pretty big thing for a uh, five-letter word. It's a whole lot that we encompass. Now, to share with you a little bit of what I do in the mornings, to get my head straight and help focus, I carry around, and this is, of course, part of the touchy-feely part of the workshop, this little book, which I've carried around for years. So every morning I open it, and I'm going to, excuse the 60-speak, share with you. But I am an unrepentant and unreconstructed hippie. So This reading, which was incredibly um, apt for what we're doing here this afternoon. And, of course, the book knew that, that I was going to open it. The Parable of the Lute. Once the Blessed One lived near Rajagaha on Vulture Peak. At that time, while the Venerable Sona lived alone and secluded in the cool forest, this thought occurred to him. Of those disciples of the Blessed One who are energetic, I am one, yet my mind has not found freedom. Now, the Blessed One, perceiving in his own mind the Venerable Sona's thoughts, left Vulture Peak and as speedily as a strong man might stretch his bent arm, or bend his stretched arm, he appeared in the cool forest before the Venerable Sona. And he said to the Venerable Sona, Sona, did not this thought arise in your mind? Of those disciples of the Blessed One who are energetic, I am one, yet my mind has not found freedom. Yes, Lord. Tell me, Sona, in earlier days, were you not skilled in playing string music on a lute? Yes, Lord. And tell me, Sona, when the strings of your lute were too taut, was then your lute tuneful and easily playable? Certainly not, O oh Lord. And when the strings of your lute were too loose, was then your lute tuneful and easily playable? Certainly not, O oh Lord. But when, Sona, the strings of your lute were neither too taut nor too loose, but adjusted to an even pitch, did your lute have, then have a wonderful sound and was it easily playable? Certainly, O oh Lord. Similarly, Sona, if energy is applied too strongly, it will lead to restlessness. And if energy is too lax, it will lead to lassitude. Therefore, Sona, keep your energy in balance and balance the spiritual faculties, and in this way, focus your attention. Yes, O oh Lord, replied the Venerable Sona in assent. Afterward, the Venerable Sona kept his energy balanced, balanced the spiritual faculties, and in this way focused his attention. And the Venerable Sona, living alone and secluded, diligent, ardent, and resolute, soon realized here and now, through his own direct knowledge, that unequaled goal of the holy life. 
keeping your strings in the right way to achieve the balance and to find your voice. And that's what we're doing all the time, is finding how do we tune our instrument. Is it too loose? Is it too taut? Is it right? How do we do that? It shouldn't matter what language you use. If your tone is right, if your thoughts are right, you find your voice. Recently, I, I was doing a, a workshop of one person, one-on-one, at a high-energy commercial radio station in, in New York City and with this young woman whose uh, unenviable task was to share airtime with two guys who dissed her constantly. And they wanted me to work with her on her delivery. She ad-libbed the news. She fended off being called Prozac Girl. She... Um, was supposed to read PSAs with meaning and uh, commercials with intent to sell. And we went through this whole thing, the series. We did the exercise we did. We did all sorts of things at the end of the two hours. I said, well, and she was still like, well, that's really helpful, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm still not sure. I said, well, just be who you are. Be yourself, and that's your voice. And she said, but I don't know who I am. Then how can we know what voice to use for a piece if the piece determines the voice? Because in the pieces, and we've heard some examples of this, we're telling a story. This is a person with a goiter problem. <laughs> okay, I was a sculpture major, not a major. Are we telling my story, the I, the memoir, the first person? Are we telling their story, that third person? This is the memoir. And where does the microphone point? What's the reference? Whose voice are we using to tell the story and in what way? And there is no phrase probably too small. Let's take the phrase, I love you. What's it about? You. Okay, it's about you. What else? I and you. I and you. What else? And love, and, and what is the love? What is love? That's oh, you're very deep. <laughs> <laughs> is it uh, a noun, a verb? Uh, what is it? It's a yes. <laughs> I, I had a high school teacher who had us read War and Peace, and we plowed diligently through all those pages of War and Peace, and they said, well, what's it about? Well, the right answer was it's about and. Okay. <laughs> I love you is about you, it's about I, it's about all the things that love may mean. But how do you say that? We've all said that expression, whether you look in the mirror and say it or, you know, whatever, right? If it's a person you don't know, I love you? It's a question. I don't know if I love you. Okay, maybe it's uh, a person you do know. Excuse me, I, this is an honor. I love you. I know her, and I love her. It's a different way of saying it. What I would like you to do is turn to the person closest to you, physically, not emotionally, and say to them, I love you. It can be a question, it can be a statement, it can be, are you out of your mind? 
I love you. I love you. Okay, that's three words. In our pieces that we do, all of us as radio people, how many words do we tend to have in a piece, whether it's ours or the people we're interviewing? Hundreds of words. Think what you can do with just three of them. I love you. It's so powerful what you can do by deciding the voice. Literally how you use your instrument and the tone of voice. How do you write in and out of the tape? The tape when somebody is just... You're with a dear friend and they have just told you that after all these years, you smell bad. Okay? Uh, do you turn around and say, yeah, I love you? Or do you say, thank you so much in your tone. I love you. You're grateful for it. How do you determine what you're going to do? These are the things that seem so obvious and simple but propel our work. So let me play a piece of work. Um, Yesterday, actually, I played uh, a piece of Greg Whitehead's, but we're Greg Whitehead out, I think, at this point, <laughs> that he did on the voice, where, um, you know, it was the, what are the qualities of the voice? <laughs> and how do we decide? So what I want to play now is actually a piece that, that I did uh, years ago that uh, aired on, on NPR. And this is not going to, believe me, this is not going to be all my pieces today at all. Um, but it was about the voice, and I started thinking about what the voice means. See, there was an expression of love in the back of the room about a, a dozen years ago. Now, what, how would he have, what would you have said back to, to Ed's kiss? How would you have said it to him? See, I love you now. <laughs> See? I love you. So cute. Okay. So this is, this is a piece anyway, that, as I say, aired, and the background to this is it's, it's a first-person piece. This was a, an essay. I don't do many of those. Um, and it was precipitated by the confluence, here I'm being the audio anthropologist, the confluence of um, my grandmother's death and my best friend's death within a few months of each other. And my grandmother, I had been recording her for several years and, and about her escape from Germany. So I had... She knew that whenever I came, I came with a microphone, I came with a tape recorder, that this was usual. And at this instance, um, I had the premonition that she was going to die and went out specifically to see her, feeling that that was what was about to happen, though there were no indications to that effect. And she agreed to let me tape her death. I never said, excuse me, may I tape your death? It was just an implied agreement. So... With that cheerful introduction, provided it plays. Maybe it's not. I'm never sure what to say to someone when I learn that someone close to them has died. Oh, I'm so sorry. Call any time. My thoughts are with you. Just as death stills the voices of the dead, it also takes the larynxes of the living. Beginning a week before my 96-year-old grandmother died last October, she didn't eat or drink, saw with her eyes very little, decided to stop living and quit speaking. The only sound she made was her breathing, a sound like the wind. There's an African Bushman poem about the winds of death. It says that when we die, our wind blows, for humans possess wind. That wind makes dust to take away our footprints, so it will not seem as if we were still alive. 
There are images, imprints of the dead that do remain for the living, sometimes letters carefully kept or accidentally left around when death comes suddenly. Usually there are photographs, snapshots of younger, fitter, hairier folks, photographs as spirit catchers and as prompters for the memory. The last time I saw Frankie, we were in Tokyo. It was a friend's birthday and there was a small party. As a gift, Frankie gave a set of white-glazed pottery teacups in a fine wooden box. Now, these bumpy vessels hold both tea and memories. They were used for the first time last Monday, when 50 years younger than my grandmother, Frank, died. Like her, near the end, death left him speechless. AIDS, not old age, muffled him. Like my grandmother, we were the keepers of each other's history, for we'd been friends since those all years a summer of love times in San Francisco, when Jim Morrison, Mama Cass, Jimi Hendrix, and Janis Joplin were still alive. Sure, I have my memories, and a couple of slides I'll have printed now so that I can look at him again. But what I wish I had is his voice. Frankie and I had talked about sitting around with a tape recorder, but his illness moved faster than our intent. I tape strangers all the time, my microphone held close to their speech chambers. But I don't record my friends, that's so intimate with someone you know well. Now all I have is a copy of the message on his telephone answering machine. Leave message, date, and time, and I will get back to you. I just wish he could. Now I've learned the value of shooting my friend's vocal images when tongues, teeth, and spirits can still give sound to tape, for the voice can give vibrance to even the most colorful of photographs of the living and the dead. For National Public Radio. Cheerful little piece. Voice really matters. Capture, we are voice catchers. We do. Did you leave off on Karen Michelle on the piece? No, it's there. You don't even know. I mean, you know that, right? It's yeah. not information here. Thank you for being so attentive. No. Um, sorry, that piece just, I just like, because I, I really miss him. It's really hard. What I want to play now, what I want to play now, excuse me, um, <coughs> excuse me, are three examples of vocal delivery that are very different from each other. All right, I can do this. One is something probably most of you have heard and have heard a number of times. These are three distinct, not only vocal styles, but notions of what voice means. Remember, we're not just talking to ourselves, though when we're recording ourselves, we tend to be alone. It's solitary. What we're really giving voice to are all these people for all those voices out there to hear, all those people who are listening usually with their mouths closed. Although, on the other hand, how do people listen to the radio? How do they listen? How do you listen? In a car. Okay. Tell no, no real urbanites here. How else? Bed. Do you ever listen um, it, with a, a pedestrian, a walk person? You know, people walk around with the earphones in their ears. That's pretty intimate, those orifices. 
Okay? So you, your voice is going right into someone in one of the most intimate ways that it can. Do we have earlids? No, we have eyelids. We can block out what we see. We cannot block out what we hear unless we really, really work at it. And, and somebody once told me that schizophrenics, one of the characteristics, and those are, there might be somebody here who knows much better than I, cannot do that, can't differentiate, can't block out the sounds. And um, I one time, and I won't give the circumstances, had that experience uh, where, you know, you're laughing, you know what I mean, uh, where all sounds were just coming at me from near, far, everywhere, all around, and I couldn't block them out. I thought I was going to literally go crazy, but I knew in a few hours it would be over. <laughs> So uh, earlids. Okay. So here are three distinctly different uh, vocal examples. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later, Because I've seldom seen anything I never looked at over the back of a horse. People have told me this world is passing by me, and it's true, of course. I've never seen cafes and exotic places that cost you an arm and a leg. I've never seen sacred cows grazing or one-legged Arabs that beg. But I've seen the top of the Rockies and Wind River trails as they cross. Black Mountain in summertime's glory, and most times I feel it's a loss. If I don't see the sun that comes rising on green valleys where rattlesnakes feed, up in High Park and the Bighorns, far from the white-capping seas. And now, again, different. We will fly way up high Where the cold wind blows For in the sun, laughing, having fun with all the people that you know And if the situation should keep us separated You know 
Those three different pieces. I know you're digesting. <laughs> Come on. Leal it out. We can hear in here. One was a song, and seen one was a preacher, and they all had rhythm. Okay. Rhythm. There were rhythmic differences. What else? Audience differences. Uh, speaking to a, a large crowd and then speaking, I'm not sure what the second one's audience was, but and the third was music, which can have different audiences. But okay. So we have first Martin Luther King Jr. You all knew that one, right? Second was Howard Norskog, the cowboy poet. Okay. And third was Ricky Lee Jones. And she did something really interesting with her voice. And I remember, we're not talking voice just in how is the singing, but in the tone. How do you decide what voice to use? She changed. She did a change up in the middle. So can you in a piece. Because remember, if you're using tape, if you're doing a, a piece that isn't an essayistic first person, you're writing in and out of other people's voices. How do you do that? You reflect their rhythm and tone. Okay, similar kind of thing. And these three people were writing for the ear to be heard, not to be read but for presentation. It wasn't, part of it is the audience, but part of it is how do you make that connection between how you produce the sound, this is your uvula, and your brain, okay? And then all of this, I was a sculpture major, okay? You know, feeds into your big ear, your audience, all of this stuff. So how do you decide what voice to use? How do you give voice? I'm going to play um, a little piece, a little bit of a piece. I'm not going to play, for the most part, entire pieces of Sunshine Hotel uh, done by Dave Isay. Has anybody here heard this piece? Okay, great. And I'm going to play this one, one section of it. I'm cued a little bit early. Because one, this is a piece that where Dave is not theoretically there. I mean, he's not, I don't mean theoretically, he's not overtly there. We don't hear his voice. We have a narrator, the guy who ran the Sunshine Hotel, and for background, for because it were not that many people actually said they'd heard it. This is a flop house on New York City's Bowery. And uh, David and his associate producer, Stacey Abramson, spent several months recording the denizens of this uh, flop house, which is now a trendy place for European tourists to stay, ironically. But um, in the course of this, found a natural narrator, the man who managed the, uh, the Sunshine Hotel. And he tells the story. And we hear some incredible voices. 
Sunshine is the last stop. On the one hand, it's probably as close as you can come to living in hell. 125 dysfunctional guys crammed together in this old hotel. On the other hand, it's it's pretty interesting. There were some hotels on the Bowery. I've had everything here from a priest to a murderer. You wouldn't believe the characters that stay here at the Sunshine. For instance, you see that little elfin white guy walking through the lobby? That happens to be the only deaf mute crack addict on the bottom. Oh, this is Donnie. He loves this place. This gentleman here, dude, this is our Sue Maven. Yeah, I'm Bob Russell. He sues everybody in town. I think he's suing the Pope now for uh, malfeasance or Father O'Connor. You know, what happened? This is Vinny, this is Vinny here. What, what? Vinny Giganti, yeah. cubicle oh, 25A. Vinny has throat yeah. cancer and talks yeah. with a voice box. Yeah, it's Vinny, you know. This is the manager, he's the best guy here, bro. I've been here seven years, this man's like my adopted father. Vinny looks a lot like the famous mob boss, Vincent the Chin Giganti. Rumor has it that the guy's his uncle, although I don't know. I came here because I was addicted to heroin. I didn't want to bother my family anymore, so I've been here since then, and I will be here until I die, bro, please. That chirping sound you hear is Vinny's two lovebirds. He spends all day in his cubicle taking care of. This is pretty boy. He's ten years old. This is little bit. He's five. He's a devil. Yes, you are. If they could care of each other, if it wasn't for these birds, I don't think I'd have made it in this place. These birds have been my life. So many people don't realize you need something, you know, to help you through everything or you're not going to make it. Hey, Pop. Tell me something slick, Anthony. Tell me what's going on. Anthony Capone, Cubicle 4B. Everyone here calls him Fat Anthony because he weighs 425 pounds. Sometimes I knock off a 26-ounce can of Chef Boyardee ravioli. That is for five people in the family. I'll be eating a cold right out of the can. That is a load of eats. That's a lot of grub there. Anthony's an orphan who came to the Bowery as a teenager about 20 years ago. When I first met Anthony, he was a normal-sized person. But something about this place caused him to eat and eat and eat. Anthony's gotten so large he doesn't fit in his clothes anymore. He just walks around the hotel wrapped in a sheet and almost never leaves the building. Why should I go anywhere? I can, if I want air, I just open up the window. Turn on my fan a little higher and I got air. <laughs> Excuse me. I've been trying to get Anthony to move to a hospital, but he won't go. I don't want to leave that yet. Too much like home. Too much like home. Would that work uh, in print in the same way? This is such radio. This is, this is you know, we were listening when, when you first came in to Charles Mingus, the uh, bassist and late bassist and composer, to his piece Pithecanthropus erectus, which in, uh, where in 10 minutes he attempts to give the entire history of humankind. Well, this is an hour with the whole milieu, the whole sh place of the Sunshine Hotel, in a way that is as musical at least as what Mingus did in his music. And this is the beauty of the medium we inhabit, is that 
we give voice to people who don't. We use our way of achieving that synthesis of voices to make a whole other statement. And this, this piece blows me away. I mean, as many times as I've heard it, I'm like, Phew. And when you hear that guy, you know, with his, I know there's another term for voice box, it just, you just get something in some place, you know, way lower than this that, that gets you in a way because one of the first things anybody does is make sound. As babies, we made sounds. One of the first, you know, it could be farts, but they were sounds. We made sounds. We're very sonically um, oriented. Because, um, yeah, Ed's here, good. I want to talk a little bit about this first person, third person thing. And there are pieces that bridge first and third. We've heard, um, you know, there's the whole kind of uh, the radio rookies, the uh, radio diaries, a lot of first person pieces. There's a real, the, the, this American life, much of radio now is first person. Most reportage is third person. There are ways to bridge the two, and, and I want to play several examples because it's such an interesting and difficult problem when you decide whether it's literally your voice or theirs. And um, Edward Lifson is with us, so I really want to play a piece that he did many years ago, uh, 94 as it turns out, October 94, where he does something very interesting stylistically, and I'd like to take advantage, if you don't mind, of your being here if there are questions about the decisions that were made, provided this one's queued up. But first, to Chicago, and a twist on one of this year's themes. In theory, Dan Rostenkowski should head the list of endangered Democrats. He's not only running for his 19th term in Congress, he's doing so after being indicted for misuse of government funds and losing his position as chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. And NPR's Edward Lifson reports that Rostenkowski also looks like a runaway winner, even though he's not campaigning. There was a time when Rostenkowski campaign headquarters dominated a city block, with posters as large as the man himself. But now, at the headquarters Rostenkowski used in last spring's primary, the windows are either whitewashed or boarded up. The big man on Capitol Hill is invisible in his home district. It may be a campaign strategy that will work. It may be a strategy of precaution, but don't think that Rostenkowski doesn't have loyal supporters in Chicago. Everybody know what he stands for, you know, and and they know that Dan Rostenkowski going to, you know, do for his, his people. Eric Patterson and his friend are playing drums in the padlocked entryway to what used to be Rostenkowski headquarters. I really don't think he have to uh, even run any ads. You know, he's been here for 30 years. You know, people are going to vote for him out of loyalty. He's like the Kennedys. He's a Kennedy to Chicago. That's what he is. <laughs> Alan Gittleson is a political scientist at Loyola University in Chicago. At this point, Rosenkowski could win that congressional district without appearing in the congressional district between now and the November 8th elections. Why appear in a district where inevitably the press will be trailing you, asking you questions about his indictment, and raising an issue which he really does not want to raise relative to this election? Staffers at Rostenkowski's district congressional offices say they don't know who's managing the congressman's campaign. They refer all calls to an answering machine. Hello, you've reached Rostenkowski for Congress Committee. No one is able to answer your call right now. Please leave a detailed message after this tone. Thank you. 
our calls to that machine, like all of our efforts to reach Rostenkowski, went unanswered. So we paid a visit to the congressional office. According to the local phone company's reverse directory, the answering machine is located at 2150 North Damon Avenue. But the congressional staff said they'd never heard of that address. I found it isn't far away. And it turns out to be a back room of Democratic Alderman Terry Gubinsky's 32nd Ward office. He's an old friend of Rostenkowski's. There's a solid old gray metal and wooden door, unpainted, with a peephole about halfway up. The two windows are blinded. I follow the sign to the entrance next door, and when I enter, Kabinsky's aides are smiling. They say, we were told you were coming. They say they are not aware of any Rostenkowski phone machine or campaign work going on in the back room. This same alderman's wife, Celeste Kabinsky, was investigated for being a possible ghost payroller for Rostenkowski. She was not indicted, and Rostenkowski maintains that she and he did nothing wrong. Political scientist Alan Gittleson is not surprised that the congressman might still use the assets of his political allies. At this point, his loyalty is providing him with justification for seeing old friends and, and meeting with individuals and using resources that might not look favorable in the light of the indictments. Rostenkowski's Republican challenger, Michael Patrick Flanagan, admits it will take an act of God to defeat even the wounded Goliath. Money and volunteers would help, too. Flanagan has less than $9,000 on hand. Rostenkowski has 300000 Rostenkowski had $1.2 million before dipping into his campaign funds to pay his legal bills. Talking to college students in Chicago on Tuesday, 31-year-old Michael Flanagan, mustachioed, bespectacled, in red suspenders with peach elephants on his tie, tries to put the best spin on his chances of beating Rostenkowski. I will tell you that after November he will be a not-well-liked, indicted member of the minority party, and I'll tell you that he couldn't pass gas without help. Times have changed. Things have moved on. On the street in the 5th District, voters seem to have little interest in sweeping Rostenkowski out. My name is Robert... What do you want my name for? Okay. My name is Robert S. Comada. And I'm a retired Chicago school teacher, and I live in the congressman's district, and I'm proud to vote for him. Who's running against uh, Congressman Rostenkowski this November? I have no idea. I don't know his name, and I don't care what his name is. The 5th District is more than 10 to 1 Democrats. There are many who will vote against Rostenkowski. But even the local Republican Party leaders aren't speaking badly of the man who brings home the bacon to Illinois. Rostenkowski's tougher battle will be in court. In Chicago, I'm Edward Lipson reporting. Interesting choices made in that piece. He's in it, but it's not about him. Ed, how did you make those decisions? You know, that's the first time I've heard it since 1994. <laughs> <laughs> You should say something that I've carried it around all these years. I, I thought that a, uh, and, and I would do it very differently today, but nevertheless, I thought that a, uh, a voyage would be interesting, and, and uh, there's a juxtaposition of this great man, and, and Rostenkowski, I don't know if you know, but he's big, and he used to wrap his arm around me like a big bear, you know, hey, kid, you know, what'd you do that for? That, you know, big guy, but he wasn't there, he wasn't uh, present, he wasn't campaigning, he was nowhere to be found. So I thought sort of a where's Rossi, a search for Danny um, would be an interesting radio piece. 
And yet, more time, I would have used a lot more sound. And, well, but there were a lot in there. Any observations about this piece in the choice of voice? Yeah, Sandy? Yeah, I, love, I really liked how you, you shifted it. And it, but it was very, I mean, it was deliberate and yet kind of seamless, too. I mean, it starts out as a report and, and, and it made sense. You were doing it. And then, you, and then you, you went from, you know, the third person to the first person plural as a transition to going to first person singular. You had the we, then you had the I. And then you had this, then you were going up, and then you were like, you know, it's almost like a Michael Moore. You didn't have a Michael Moore kind of persona, but it's like, where's, where's Rosti? Like you say, where is he? And you had this description of the door. And the only thing I would have liked, and you mentioned you might have used more sound, I would, you had an opportunity for a great scene there. And I was wondering if you, it was partly the, the perhaps the built-in hostility. That I was wondering whether you were rolling or not, because it seemed like there was an opportunity for them to say, I don't know anything about an answering machine. I don't know, you know. Sure, but they're wondering Chicago accents and Fifth Ward and yeah, um, yeah. I think they wouldn't allow me to roll any tape that I remember. Yeah. On the other hand, why is there not even street sound when I'm going there and knocking on the door? So uh, it, it was a very quick turnaround piece. Was, yeah. was one part of it. Um, and, I, and I remember in there they wouldn't let me record anything. Although sometimes that can be interesting tape in itself. I thought, but even so, I, I thought I mean, it was very visual. What, I mean, uh -huh. you you had I mean, the, the yeah, description yeah. of the door and the very spare, precise right. choices to how how you describe the you know the color of the door and all that. And the people, yeah, the people. Out um, there. I believe in always having a tape recorder on, so I would have. Huh. The, one of the really interesting parts to me in that is when the guy says, "My name is. Why do you want to know my name?" Yeah, you know, and the decision to leave that yeah. in. Is is always like that surprise element, you know, so in there. Big fight with the NPR editors because I was getting it from them too. Why do you want to leave that in? <laughs> Between both of you, <laughs> it works. So, yeah. and and you know, this is a really complex piece in so you know so many ways. And I've never heard anyone do quite what you did in this piece. I mean, it's wonderful. Thank you Thank for you. being here. Um, one of the the uh, and this it's very interesting you say you have to fight to keep that in because one of the things is you know that reasonable voice of NPR how reasonable it is and how you can just block it out you know what story is it who gives a damn what story it is it sounds like the story before it the story after it the story next week the story last week they start sounding I'm not trying to NPR bash really but you know it just all starts sounding the same it's this it's this wash and I don't mean wash in the artistic lovely sense I mean in the typhoon wipe you out sense, it becomes nothing, it becomes meaningless. And then you hear something like this, of course, in 1994, and it, it breaks through it. So I want to play an, another um, NPR piece, I mean, I think I've cued it next, that also switches between first and third person, but in a different way. And I, and I certainly don't want to dwell on death in here, and we already heard one, you know, death piece, but this is a, an obit. And um, I'm trying and do the backstory behind this obit. This is a, an obit that aired a few months ago on, on Peggy Lee, the singer, and it's a, it's a piece that I did. Um, and I'd done a number of pieces on Peggy Lee, and when I interviewed her, clearly before she died, I mean, well, you never know, it's not so clear, I interviewed Peggy. Um, at the time, she was doing a nightclub act, and she was coming to, to New York, and she said, I could have 10 minutes in the break between sets. I could come to rehearsal, and this was, my assignment was to do a half hour documentary. 
and she was like, she'll give me a 10-minute interview. As you all know, this is not quite enough material unless you do the kind of piece where you, where's Peggy, you know, a similar kind of thing, and you write, you know, all, all around it. So you'll hear from the first line. I'm going to give away the first line of the piece just by way of, of explaining this. The reason, there are several things and people who are huge influences on, on the way I use my voice, certainly, and how I think about voice. One was Charles Mingus, um, because he really had a unique voice. And he was able to, through sheer power of, of his repetition, his brilliance, his personality, to share that voice and have other people believe in that voice. I, I get most of my ideas from listening to music, certainly not from listening to radio. I hardly listen to radio anymore. Um, but early on, I, I used to li I lived in Alaska for many years, and that's why I started in radio. And I was living um, at one point in a geodesic dome in the woods without water or electricity and lived there for a very long time. Um, but I heard the radio. I had a radio, you know, good old batteries, right? And Susan Stamberg was hosting All Things Considered. And I was born in New York, and there I am in the woods in Alaska, right? And I hear this voice saying, coffee. <laughs> you know, and I'm talking the old Susan. I'm not going to talk about Susan now as a role model, really. But in those days, she really had a sound that was so much hers and that so much was warm and welcoming and talking to, her, to you, her intimate in your, your, your orifices audience, without apologies, without trying to sound like a normal. And I just thought, wow, that's community. That's a connection. So that was an influence. And Peggy Lee was a big influence. And the reason she was such a big influence, in part, is um, some of you may have seen reruns of this program, but there are a few other people, at least as old as I am in this room, who may have seen the Ed Sullivan Show. And Peggy Lee, when I was a little kid, she was on the Ann Sullivan show singing Fever, and there she was, you know, doing this, this thing. And I was like, that was one of those eureka moments. I mean, many of us have those, those times where the world opens, the, 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 you know, the, the clouds part and the sun shines, and it was like, I got what sex was. It was like one of those, you know, things that it wasn't just some thing where in the playground you went to the side and looked up vagina in the dictionary, you know, or something. It was like, here it was. So um, when I met Miss, Miss Lee, Miss Peggy Lee, never forget the Miss Peggy Lee, went to her rehearsal, and I was like, holy crap, what am I going to do? Ten minutes? Ten minutes? I can't do this in ten minutes. So, and she had been, um, let's say, using substances extensively throughout the rehearsal. So by the time she had a break in the rehearsal, she was a little slurry. And so I, 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 and she made me stand there holding, of course, the strap had broken on the tape recorder. It was, you know, one of those days. And I'm like, showing this stuff. And I told her this story that, you know, I first understood what sex was about when I saw her on the Ed Sullivan show. And she howled and kept the musicians waiting. Always know your first thing you're going to do in an interview. That's the moral, you know, of this. So I had a 20-minute interview, big deal. And so when it came time to do her obit, I used the line and then got out of the first person. So this is just another technique. When I was a kid, I first knew that sex was more than a word in the dictionary when I heard Peggy Lee sing Fever. Never know how much I love you. Never know how much I care. 
When you put your arms around me, I get a fever that's so hard to bang. You give me fever. Peggy Lee does more than sing. She delivers a tune. For fever, Lee stands still, her right arm outstretched, fingers snapping, her voice somehow cold while singing words of steam. Sun lights up the daytime, moon lights up the night. I light up when you call my name, and you know I'm gonna treat you right. You give me fever. Max Bennett brought me the song, the Little Willie John's big hit record. And I agreed that I'd love to sing it, but I couldn't sing some of the lyrics, and they were not for me to sing. And so I wrote lyrics for it. Pianist George Shearing says it's the arrangement, as much as the lyrics, that causes fever. The space is left for the rhythm. Fever in the morning. All these spaces in between. That's my arrangement. Drums, bass, and finger snapping. When you kiss me, fever. When you hold me tight, fever. In the morning, a fever walks through the night. Peggy Lee didn't have a big, beautiful voice. What she had was style and a gift for getting to the core of a lyric. It's a talent she recognized early on. Will Friedwald has written many a liner note about Peggy Lee. She had a very, somebody called it a very bleak Dickensian childhood in North Dakota. It was really kind of grim, and she said that her only solace or her only kind of joy in life was listening to bands on the radio. You know, she discovered Count Basie at a very early age on the radio, even before he left Kansas City, and that was what she decided she had to do was to be a part of the music world. Lee admired and learned from Basie's sense of swing and sense of time. The sparseness of things he made everything count, and I think about one of my favorite mottos is by Chief Justice Holmes. He said, "The eternal struggle of art is to leave out all but the essentials." I think Basie knew how to do that. From the mid 1940s. Okay, you get the idea. So that's that's you know changing. It's it's her story. It's their story, but seen through me in a way, and then I get out of there. It's just the way in, but then out, because it's really it's about her. We hear, you know, I certainly hear when I do listen to the radio, all the things they say. And so I asked. Well, we know you asked because you have the microphone. We don't need to hear that. I asked so and so stuff, and it's I hear it a lot. Yes. Did you um, conclude by going back to you, like how her death affected? Did you no. return at all? Uh. Uh-uh. Uh, it was enough. I, yes. I asked this musician to play for me. He said no. <laughs> and it's a great way of opening. You know, we always want to hold the mic. Um, so, so the scene is, you know, I op- he opens the door. There's big speakers. I asked him to play. I, I wrote, I asked him to play, and then I crossed it out, and I wrote, um, he was asked to play, and I crossed that out. <laughs> and I wrote, um, when asked to play, he said no. And then you hear the two of us on tape wrangling and laughing. But I'm struggling with putting myself in there, because it's not my story. It's, and I'm not supposed to be there, in a way. I mean, the only reason I'm in the Peggy Lee story is because it was so personal to me. Otherwise, no. You know, and there's some, some other things. I have, if we had another hour, I also have a piece that Stephen Smith did here on herbal healers. Um, where he's in and out of the piece. 
And it's again another example of being part of but apart from a piece. It's just it's one of those things that's really interesting to me that how you do that bridge between in and out of a story when it really is someone else's story and how you accomplish that. And I remember Sandy one time uh, was talking about when somebody broke your microphone and do you leave that in or take it out? And you left it in, the breaking of the microphone, because that was such a, an important moment. But Karen, also because you're talking about the first person and third person, so the song, and you say you learned about sex from that song, and the song is You Give Me Fever, so she's already talking about someone else, yeah. right? and you're experiencing that through her, the whole thing is on the loop. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but you is that direct reference. If we say one, then we're distanced. So by saying you, whether it's in a in song or in text, yeah. we're already speaking directly to the audience. You, we don't say. Oh, you think she's saying the audience gives me fever? You give me fever. Yeah. Well, that man may well be in the audience. <laughs> yes. One thing I love about your delivery is that even when you're talking in the third person. There's a first-person quality about it. Is that I don't, so? In some ways, it doesn't make sense to me to make this third-person, first-person distinction only in um, you know the actual grammar of it. But if someone but else tone that you have, you always have a first-person tone. What do you mean? It's just you. To, you're always you're always in your story in a way with your tone, but not in a not in a distracting way. But it's like. Enough so that you know where you stand. Ah, okay. That, thank you for that transition. <laughs> okay, because I'll play something else now instead of what I was going to cue up. Um, that's about knowing your own voice. And that is knowing who you are, and then you, you're always yourself. I mean, even doing stuff for NPR, where it, it's easy for the, your personality to be, to be robbed, for your you know, voice to be taken from you in an environment like that. And so you have to fight to keep your voice. I think, and, and after doing things for so many years, I think by accident I found that voice. You know, just by, by doing it and doing it and doing it and because I, I'm writing for myself. But it brings up another interesting question, which is when you write for somebody else, and this question came up yesterday, and uh, a woman in the group said she feels her voice is taken from her when she's writing for someone else. So let me play a piece. Um, that was written by one person for another person. And then you tell me if you think of a distinct voice comes through. Because it's a different problem that um, many of us face. Okay, stop. This is a piece uh, that has the world's longest introduction. Done, um, and again, this is a specific audience. This was done for the American Indian Radio and Satellite Network, Eros, uh, for, um, I can't remember now how many stations there are in the network, uh, but not a whole lot. 32 at most, 16, something. It's, it's, it's not a huge audience. And this was written um, for someone. And the reaction to this piece has been different depending on who I play it for. From the National Museum of the American Indian Smithsonian Institution, 
This is Coyote Bites Back Indian Humor. I'm Muriel Miguel. There are people who'd say Indians, Native Americans, aren't funny. Wrong. My family was funny. We'd sit around the kitchen table in Brooklyn cracking up, mostly telling jokes on ourselves. My dad was from the San Blas Islands from Panama, Puna. He was in the Merchant Marines, passing through when he met my Rappahannock mother. There were more Indians living in my part of Brooklyn then. The times have changed, and so has what we laugh at. For example, how long have you been Indian? Fifty-four years. It would have been fifty-five, but I was sick a year. Midwestern humorist and journalist Jim Northrop's jokes are of his time, not of the buffalo and the prairie and the past. Are you a full-blooded Indian? Pint low. Just come from the blood bank. And what's the difference between praying in church and praying at the casino? At the casino, you really mean it. <laughs> and finally, why is the white man in such a hurry to get to Mars? Because they think we have land up there. Jim Northrop at the opening of an exhibition on Indian humor at the National Museum of the American Indian in Manhattan. It's one thing to tell jokes. And another to figure out how to make what's funny visual. Janine Antoine, executive director. Okay. Whose voice is that? It's hard to tell when you know beforehand that it was written by someone else before. <laughs> yeah, but the trick to writing for someone else, I'll play a couple of pieces that were uh, one more piece, uh, part of a piece that was like that, is to spend time with that person to find out what their voice is. Because this is a thing. I mean, you can get gigs writing for other people, right? It's not so easy to support yourself in this business, so-called business. Well, one thing you can do is uh, you've probably, you know, seen the solicitations for the Osgood files. You know, make a quick buck writing for Charlie. Well, believe me, it ain't worth it because there are, you know, advertisements for soft mattresses and motels right in the middle of your gorgeous construction. But you're writing for another voice. Karen, that was not... That voice was not a person whose father was from Panama. It was, but it meant spending time with her, finding out what her story was, and, and, and then she was not an actress. Mm -mm. Next one I'm going to play is going to be an actor. Yeah, but good observation. No, that was her story, but it wasn't written by her. She sat with the writer, told them her story. The writer wrote the story. Then they worked together to find out how she could really tell it. Now. My question of all of you is, did that delivery work for you? No. It's not funny. I mean, who wants to be told that you're funny? We're very funny. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah. It seemed like it went through a processor. It, 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 it went through some sort of, this is how you're supposed to speak on a radio processor. Her delivery was just the content. And how? Now, here's the funny part. Uh, a little while ago, I did a workshop um, also in Alaska for Native American broadcasters from around the country and played this piece. They were howling. Absolutely. The very thing that drives me nuts.
to listen to, that staccato, that like you're killing the lines, you know, that, that thing. I was like, oh, that's really funny. You can tell she's not a res Indian. She didn't grow up on the res. It had a completely other resonance for the audience. And this is part of, you know, where is this story going? I mean, who, who on page two, whose ears is this for? And that really determines a lot about the voice you use. Now let me play a little excerpt of um, something from the DNA files, which was two um, five-part series of an hour each. And in each one of them, there was a dramatic element. Now, in documentary, we're told, oh, no, television can do docudrama, but, you know, we'd better not. So this was um, a program that started out, John Hockenberry hosted, hosted the program. So, again, it meant writing for someone else. But then there's an actress in here, too. And the conceit was that all the activity took place in a lounge. As you will hear, provided I can actually cue this puppy up. I Heal think over. I'll enjoy this life and look forward to the next. Originally, I wanted to live to be 80 so I could see the year 2000. Well, I made that, so I don't have any long-range goals right now. <laughs> uh, hello. Well, hello. Interesting outfit. Uh, gold medal snakes wrapped around your arms and neck. Uh, tiara with the uh, horns. That's quite a combo. You're not from St. Augustine, are you? You're a tourist like me. Well, more a citizen of the world. Uh-huh. Actually, I thought you might like a guide to these parts. Mm. That is, the sagging, bagging parts. Ugh. And to the elixirs and elucidators of aging, fountains and findings of youth like you have never seen or heard, sparkling telomeres, super superflies, romps in the biosphere where bananas are like gold, visions of a future of eternal youth and eternal life. Oh, John, come with me. But, but tell me, Cleo. That is your name, isn't it? I mean, that's the name embroidered on your emerald green. Is it really cotton bowling shirt then? Bowling. <laughs> My ass. What's your story? I mean, why were you at the Fountain of Youth along with me? I mean, I know that red hair came from a bottle. Could it be that you, like me, are also searching for the source? Whoa! I, what did you put into that fountain? Where are we? Slot machines shaped like giant helixes? Giant roulette wheels with people as the balls? And yuck, there are bugs here, rotting fruit with flies hovering and piles of compost with worms and monkeys. What is this, the monkey bar? There are mice running over my feet, there are rats. For rodents, I could have stayed in New York. My parents warned me about these kind of places. Hey, they were probably here plenty of times themselves. Most of us are. Welcome to Denial Lounge. I'm your hostess, Cleopatra, the uh, <clears throat> queen of denial. Oh, I get it. Do you? The clues, the key. Okay. So that's a different style. That's a different stylistic choice, again, of ways of using voice. You just assign them to other people. And they can get away with many things. If you invent characters, Cleopatra can do all sorts of things. And so that was one of the choices here. And... Everybody, all the producers in this series chose to use, to do a dramatic section somewhere in the hour. It was, I think, almost without, I think almost without exception that was the case. And it, and it violates conventions to do stuff like that. 
Any observations before another couple of quick other voices? This, you know, after lunch is not the best. Any other questions? I mean, there are plows of, of pieces to play in the next thing. Then I'm going to play a little bit of Alice Furlow, who certainly has a distinct voice uh, like no other. And this piece was from um, The Next Big Thing. I'll just play the beginning of it. And it sets up, you decide, is it true or is it fantasy? I'm Dean Olsher, and you're listening to The Next Big Thing. We have advance word of an important discovery made by presidential biographer Desmond Russell. In the course of researching a three-volume work on the Bush dynasty, Russell has learned that among George W. Bush's many brothers is yet another one who has been, so far, unknown to the public. His name is Basil Mortimer Bush, and it does not appear in a single Bush family archive. Next Big Thing reporter Alice Furlow found out about the lost presidential brother and tracked him down in inland Maine, nowhere near Kennebunkport. She reports that Basil Bush is not living in the style to which the rest of the family has become accustomed. Basil Bush lives very marginally, almost as if he were part of a trailer population. He doesn't live in a trailer, but in a small shack with a front yard littered with the rusty remains of automobiles. I promise not to reveal the exact location. He works part-time at an auto body repair shop and has a girlfriend called Pegine. She declined to be interviewed, but Basil Bush welcomed me to his home. Okay, come on in. I'm sorry about the mess. I haven't had many visitors. Oh, not at all. Bush, age 44, is a tall, gentle, shy man who looks a lot like his mother, He seems fragile in spite of his size. He's almost obese. This fragility may be due to his eight years in prison. He got out just over a year ago. I asked him how that happened. In my life, I've met a lot of people who had problems and were in need, and I felt that I could help. How did that lead to jail? Well, eventually, I think I overextended myself, and... uh, At a certain point, I began to forge checks. Uh Aha. It was Desmond... Okay, it's a joke, folks. There is no hidden Bush brother. But as it turned out, all sorts of people thought this piece was real. Which shows you a lot of what people think about the Bush family. Okay, one quick other hit from uh, Sarah Fishko. Piece from Studio 360. No. <laughs> and w- WNYC and, I don't know, four other stations, something like that. Because this show isn't the news program. And it's an interesting thing that when people hear, I mean, I think you said something very interesting. It's on NPR, so it must be real. It must be true. The car guys give only absolutely accurate advice. Uh, uh, Lake Wobegon is real. Uh, uh-huh. But, we, but people who would listen to that program would know it's not a news program. It's also an entertainment show. Yeah, it's an entertainment show. That's, that's the thing. That it's not constructed as a show that's about uh, the whole show is news. No, the whole show is about what radio can be. 
and the possibilities of the medium and, and trying to explore some of the, the uh, margins, I think. Both fiction and, yeah. and No, it's valid, you know. Sure, I'm not saying you should know that this is a joke, but it was a joke. And, and maybe it's a credit to her that it was so convincing. She did it so well. She knows the form so well. <laughs> well, there are people. I certainly, for a piece I did once, interviewed Basil Pennington and Father Basil Pennington. I, he could have been. He looked a lot like Barbara. <laughs> Entirely possible. Okay, so just one quick hit of uh, of Sarah here, and then I want to play one other thing to go out with. In looking for pieces for this this um, presentation, there were well, one I'm in the process of moving um, from Brooklyn to Pleasant Valley and couldn't find a whole lot of stuff. But what I found that some of the more interesting voices were women's voices. That there were. And I, I don't say this as some proto-feminist because I'm, I'm not. Um, but women seem to experiment with use of voice in a way that was different from most men, not certainly all. And that there was more variety in how women used their voices and found a voice to use. So here's a, another distinct voice, just a little bit, and it's certainly not Kurt's. But, uh, well, that's the same too. Talking about teamwork in all of the arts. In our next story, correspondent Sarah Fishko explores how the extraordinary musical group Orpheus makes its music collaboratively, democratically. The chamber orchestra as commune. Good morning. This is the model of the orchestra rehearsal one has grown up with. Now, gentlemen, we rehearse. The conductor is at the podium. The symphony in six. Complete with European accent. Ra, ba, 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 ba. He calls them gentlemen because that is what an orchestra was then. This is Bruno Walter, after all, with the Columbia Symphony Orchestra in a famous rehearsal of the Linz Symphony of Mozart, recorded in 1955. She has a distinct style, too. And she um, just does some things that are not so always so reasonable and predictable in her pieces. Sometimes, uh, for my taste, they're highly overindulgent. But nevertheless, at least she's trying something, and it's reason to, to listen, to pay attention. Anybody have any last observations and questions before I play one last piece of music? Because we're about at the end. I'm going to play a woman. Yes, please. When you talk about finding your voice, um, my background is Prince, and I've always found that when I write, It's a really good question. Uh, experience is a huge chunk of the answer, and the other is the story helps you determine the voice. And there's there, there are people who pull all their tape and then they write. Um, I pull and write simultaneously so that my voice reflects the voice of the speaker. So the rhythm and the tone and the texture and everything works with that voice, going in and out of the voice. And Joe Richmond once talked about 
uh, writing in and out of tape, and he said it's like a baton in a relay race, and you want it to be a seamless handoff. And part of that is really making your voice adapt to the voices in the piece, so that it's not, this is me no matter what. Or it's just jarring, then you get this that staccato effect, but in a much more irritating way. Depends on the piece. I certainly, for that, that first piece you heard, the death leaves you speechless. You know, that was a soft, reflective tone. Peggy Lee was harsher. If I, I, re I brought a piece I just did on the Museum of Sex. It's a wildly different tone. You know, I'm not going to talk about a museum of sex in the same way as somebody's death. So your, your tone changes, but your voice is, you own your voice, but you adapt it for the tone of the piece. You know, it, it has to be. I mean, you've, you've heard, always, I'm sure you've all heard on the air, a host who hasn't read the text first. <coughs> 15 million people died today. <coughs> you know, and it's like, hello. Or you hear the mispronunciation. The once heard uh, an unnamed host of a national news program talk about a Fender Bass. <laughs> Got to be careful. Okay, so this last piece of music, any other questions or comments? Please. Um, you're talking about finding your voice. And you, you're very good at your recording your voice. Can you talk about the technical aspects of, of microphone placement and what you use? Absolutely. Yeah, really good question. One, a uh, couple of quick things. One, singers stand for a reason. It opens the diaphragm. But in studios, as we know, you're usually made to sit. So may I borrow your chair for a second? So here's, a, here's just a couple of quick hints. Thank you. Sit forward in the chair. Uh, knees at uh, perpendicular angles. I, I'm sorry, math was not my strong point. 90 degrees, right? So that your diaphragm is open, so that you're sitting up. And then, um, thanks for sharing. In terms of microphone placement, there are all these P, Bs, Ds, Ts, and Fs problems, the plosives and fricatives, which go in different directions. Your plosives, if you put your hand in front of your mouth and go, Polly's parrot, uh, parachuted, uh, pleasingly toward the plump plum, you'll feel that those P's go up slightly. But if you instead said, Tom's terrible <laughs> friend, uh, Tomasina, forced him to, never mind, uh, you would find that the F's were going down. So, and all that makes air in the microphone. So what I do is I put the microphone above and at an angle so that I'm going at an axis to the microphone. And also it's not in my eyesight so I can read the text. I mean, there are people who refer it down. You know, you the closer you see um, singers who basically have oral sex with a microphone, right, because of the bass proximity effect. Closer you get, the bassier it gets. So the usual thing is, you know, that six inch sumo wrestler, you know, exception distance, right? Except if you're a sumo wrestler, then you don't use your hand as a measurement distance. And I, I, this is this my placement. You find your placement depending on the microphone. Each microphone has its sweet spot. So you have to work it and work with the engineer if you have the luxury of having an engineer. If you're recording yourself, and also always wear headphones. You got to hear yourself. And when you change five from death to sex, uh -huh. it's, it's just in your voice or something uh -huh. in the microphone. Not at all. It's, it, you know, I, I can say, boy, it's such a great day out there to buy a car. I can say, you know, it's a great day out there to buy a car. It's the same microphone placement. It's just modulating your voice. Any other questions before I play the exit music?
the pomp and circumstance. Um, this is Lisa Sokolov. A another one small little thing about voice, to use your voice. Singing lessons are great because it's about breathing. And if you can sing you know, in the car, sing in the shower, sing anywhere, do it because your vocal cords constrict their muscles and they have to get used. And you can go to a voice teacher and say to them, look, I'm not planning on getting up on stage and projecting because you don't have to project for a microphone. You can talk so softly and be so intimate and so connected. But that you want to learn to just use your voice and exercise the vocal cords makes a huge difference. So I've, I've done that a few times. I'm actually, one of my friends is an opera singer, so he's trying to coach me in how to, you know, use the diaphragm, project the voice, but also concentrating on rhythm. Mm -hmm. And when you're writing, do you write for rhythm? Like, yeah. do you, so the actual writing contains the rhythm, or you are accentuating it to put the rhythm mm -hmm. into your voice? It's a good question. Um, I, I write for speaking. That's the answer. I speak the text as I write it. I don't read it and hear it in my head. I actually talk it because it's so different from the ear. And this is musical composition. What we're doing is no different from what Charles Mingus did, what um, you know, any of the great composers did. We're taking different musical elements and combining them, and this is one of our instruments. The text, I mean, we've got, sorry, I'm holding you for a second here. If you look at the radio, okay, radio is what? A box, right? A box. Okay, and the box is, in, is speaking to us in this intimate way. So it becomes, here are some flames, an electronic campfire. That's all it is. It's a storytelling medium, and storytelling has rhythms to it. It's what's, it, it keeps the listener going, and what's next? What, what happened now? And it's about cadence, and it's about rhythm. If you think of the stories you heard as a kid, or when you hear a story now. Now, this, this is the flying box right now, okay? This is a little bit of shtick here. Okay, it's going to fall. Strongest structure, a tripod. Okay, so here's our tripod. Basis of radio, sound, right? If we have a piece that has text in it, writing is another one of the legs, and the other one is literally our voice. One of these is, is weak. The whole damn thing collapses. So we need them all to hold up this, this box, this radio box. And it's all in service of the sound. So the writing is about sound, and your delivery is about sound. It's all about how it sounds. And some words sound sucky on the air. They don't work. I mean, I mean do we say, I, um, my, my personal own self, I, uh, I, my human uh, bipedal self, I perambulated down the boulevard in pursuit of uh, an extrasensory experience of the illuminating kind. No, I took a walk down the street so I could find something. You know, you, you write for the ear. You know, you don't want it to sound like hell, unless you're talking about hell. Back to Joan Jett, hell is for children. Um, huh? Joan Benatar, thank you. Pat Benatar. God, how could I have done that? Oh. <laughs> Terrible. Okay, so this is um, this last piece is uh, Lisa Sokolov doing a very familiar tune, provided I can find it. Okay. It's not this is all about voice. 
So close to me. 